Good morning and Christian greetings to each of you in the name of Jesus. It's certainly good to be in the house of the Lord here again this morning and um, it is good to have mom here with us. We had the privilege of being in Indiana last weekend and at a family reunion with mom's family and uh, it was just good seeing a bunch of relatives I hadn't seen in a while and and then also uh, my sister brought mom from Kansas and then we were able to bring her back to Virginia for a week and a half and she's flying home um, this week. Um, I, it, it's just a blessing to think, of, I, don't, I think somebody mentioned health this morning and it's, it's just a blessing to, uh, to recognize the health that many of us have um, at this reunion, I had a 99-year-old aunt there from Illinois, and uh, it's mom's only living sister. And um, for those of you that don't know, mom is actually 87 and uh, just doing remarkably well being able to, um, that she has. And so I'm, I'm just very grateful for that. <clears throat> we have been working our way through 1 Corinthians and looking at various aspects of that and Literally, the more I have studied 1 Corinthians, the more I have dug into it, the more I read it, the more relevant it seems to us in the 21st century, 2,000 years later after it was written. The issues that Paul addresses in this church, that this church was facing, are very similar to the challenges many churches face today. Um, there, in the first several chapters, he addresses divisions and factions within the church. He addresses what appropriate church discipline is to a sinful member, what to do between, about lawsuits between believers, the tolerance uh, of sexual immorality of the church. He addresses that, marriage and singleness, how to think about food offered to idols or some other amoral things that we face as a church and, and how to think through those things out of respect for others with differing views. And in all of these areas, some of the Corinthian believers needed to be willing to make adjustments in the way that they thought about it. It's not that the church as a whole was wrong on these things, but there were certainly individual believers within the church that needed to make some corrections. And as I've studied this and looked at it, it seems like when it comes right down to it, Paul was dealing with two basic attitudes and the, respond, the, the related actions or reactions to that. The one, the first attitude is the what's in it for me mentality. It's like what can I get out of, out of church without the thought of what can I put into it? And so that's the one attitude that Paul was, has addressed several times through this. It's the self-centered members that, that are more interested about what they can receive or get than what they, they're willing to contribute. The other attitude that we see uh, different ways and would have seen um, yeah, in some of these chapters as well is the attitude that I'll do what I want. And the Corinthian believers were doing that in the name of Christian freedom. So basically they were saying, I, I have freedom, I can do what I want. And didn't want, these members didn't want to be told what to do, 
and had a lack of submission and accountability of the church. And, you know, when you think about it, that really, in a lot of ways, those two attitudes boil down a lot of the current tensions, issues, challenges within the church world boil down to those two very similar attitudes today. This morning, we're going to be looking at the first part of chapter 11 of Corinthians, where Paul addresses the issue of headship veiling for women. I really believe that this passage, as we look at this and study this, makes clear that women veiling themselves is a God-ordained theological practice that should not be dismissed as just something cultural. And so I've entitled this morning's message, God's Divine Order. And several observations I want to make prior to reading the text. There's a number of assumptions that, we, uh, that are made in this passage, I believe. Um, and, you know, they're, they're kind of implied, but they're not really stated. And, and I just want to identify several of these this morning uh, prior to reading the text. And one of these is so obvious and yet um, so relevant to today. And that is simply that he talks about man and woman. These two words are used nearly 30 times in these 15 verses. There's two genders. There's only two genders. And, you know, it's, it's such a basic thing, but today with all of the, um, the sexual revolution and all of the uh, transgender and the LGBTQ agenda, that is no longer the case, or they, that is being challenged. And, but it's very clear, there's two genders, and that's what God is talking about, and there's a distinctive place within God's order for each of these. They are distinct, they are different, they are co-equal. There's differences, but I mean, that's what it is. It also uh, seems that the church the Corinthian church to whom this letter was written understands what Paul is talking about here. There's not any, he's not really explaining what it is. It's more that he's just uh, elaborating on it a bit more. According to verse 2, we can conclude that the most, that, that most of the church respected and practiced what Paul outlined there, uh, this teaching, this ordinance. And there was nothing new about it. They knew what he was talking about, and they were already doing it. However, based on the last verse, we might assume, verse 16, that there may have been some that were being a bit contentious about the issue or were raising questions about it. But that was by far the minority. And so Paul here is just making sure that they understand the reason for this practice and thus is reinforcing the appropriateness of it throughout here. Unlike some of the other issues that we have looked at and that he's addressed so far in the letter to 1 Corinthians, this is an issue that Paul seems to be bringing up proactively to the church. Um, it's different than the subject uh, of marriage and food offered to idols where it's clear that he was responding to specific questions they asked. And in some of the earlier issues, he was, uh, he was directly addressing a problem that he himself witnessed and was addressing firmly. So there's very little context given here. 
Paul just jumps right in and uh, to the important points without much explanation or even a transition, but just starts talking about this. And so there's a lot packed that into these few verses, including a few rather cryptic phrases, and we're not going to have time to dissect this phrase by phrase, but uh, I do hope that we can understand and um, get the gist of what Paul is addressing here. I'd like for you to stand with me as we read together, or read, uh, while I read 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying and prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judge in yourselves as it is, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth it not, doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame to him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory for her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. You may be seated. So in this passage, Paul identifies four reasons that the principles that he's addressing in this passage are so important. And I want to take a look at these four. And the first one is found in verse 3, where he's talking about God's order in authority or headship. Um, it's, a, it's a packed verse. Um, it's very straightforward. But I want you to know, but I would have you know, that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. So he's putting extra emphasis on this right from the onset here. I want you to know uh, this is an important concept. This is something you really ought to latch on to. It's a concept that doesn't change. It's universal. It's once and for all. It's foundational. And so embracing God's divine headship order is critical for us to understand both the distinct roles as well as practices for men and women, uh, especially within the church. For this divine order to function, 
as it's designed, there's an interrelated dependence of each component. So God is the authority over Jesus. And so for that to be a reality, Jesus has to submit and obey, submit to and obey God. Jesus is the authority over man. So this is only going to work if man is submissive to and obeys Jesus, who in turn is submitted to God. And then man is the authority over woman. And so woman is to obey and submit to man, who is submitted to Jesus, who is submitted to God. This only works when all four individuals are doing what they are designed to do and in doing as God designed it. It will only work when Jesus, man, and woman submit to his divine authority. So I'm going to look at each of these just briefly. But uh, first of all, we have God the Father is head over Jesus Christ's son. Now this is in reverse order from what's given there in verse 3. Um, but from the top down, if you will. So Jesus is created, I'm sorry, Jesus is equal to God in his divine nature. So he is God, but willingly became subordinate to God the Father in setting aside his deity to come to earth in order to fulfill the redemption plan for mankind. And so Jesus remains co-equal with God, as well as the Holy Spirit in his divinity. But like we see in Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7, who, through, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as, something to be, as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. So here, Paul uh, is describing that Jesus set aside that deity in order, he emptied himself of the deity in order to come to, come to earth in the form of a servant and, and fulfill the plan of salvation. Jesus truly is the supreme example of what it means to come under the headship of another, to surrender to the authority and lordship of God and his divine order. And so there we have the first and perfect example of that. And then secondly, Jesus Christ is the head, it's not of just of man, but of every man, is what scripture tells us. Jesus Christ is Lord of all, including every man. And so Jesus is actually Lord even of unbeliever, unbelieving men. And I don't know that I had really thought about this until I was studying this, but whether you're a believer or not, Jesus Christ is man's authority and will ultimately have to answer to him. Only believers will recognize Jesus' authority over their lives. But, and even then, not all believers are actually willing to submit fully to that. And so while Jesus is the head of man, like God is, is his head, the relationship is different because Jesus and man are not co-equals. Jesus is divine. He was there at creation. He's perfect. 
And he has the divine authority over man, whether man acknowledges that or not, where man is imperfect and, and under Jesus. So my question to us men is, do we rightfully honor, respect, submit, and obey the authority, submit to the, this authority that God has placed over us? Or do we protest and rebel against what Jesus calls us to do? And so while this, the discussion in this passage usually centers around or focuses on the women, I see the, the role that men play in this as absolutely critical because if men are not submissive to and obedient to God, this whole plan falls apart and it will never work. And it's no wonder that it makes it hard for that women, it puts women in a very difficult place when that happens. Then the third aspect is that of man is the head of the woman. As men are under the authority of Jesus Christ for submission and obedience, so women are called to be under the authority of man. An obvious issue for unbelievers. I mean, they, they would rebel at that, but it, and it's also a very high call even to believers. And this headship, this relationship is even different than the previous two in that it's between two created and fallen beings, human beings. They don't have divinity. There is no perfection there. And, and it's not an indication of superiority, but simply a chain of command. God is co-equal with Jesus, and man is co-equal with, with a woman, yet there's an authority structure within both of these types of relationships. And so the principle of submitting to God to the God-ordained authority structure given us is really the underlying principle for the headship veiling. If we don't believe this, if we don't grasp this, if we don't live this, the headship veiling is just a, a meaningless going through the motions. It doesn't really mean anything, but it's all based on this being true and us living this out. When a man fails to obey or submit to Jesus as designed, he's going to make it very difficult or impossible for a woman to obey or submit to him in the way that God designed. Every one of us is under some form of authority. And so when we're under authority, obedience and submission are key elements in maintaining that orderly structure. And it isn't easy because I, we're humans, and all of us would rather not be to, being told what to do. But yet that's what, our, uh, that's what we're called to do. Our sinful nature resists the idea of submitting to anyone. But this verse 3 is so foundational. A short verse with three simple phrases establishing the divine intent and purpose behind the veiling, uh, or the not veiling, the uncovering of men. So simple, yet so profound, so basic, yet challenging for, for each of us. And it is the foundational basis for the, women's, the woman's veiling. 
I'm going to jump ahead a bit now to, jump to the second aspect, the second um, uh, reason that Paul gives, and it's in verses 8 and 9, where he talks about the, uh, God's order in creation. God created man, Adam, out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into him the breath of life, and he became a living soul. I mean, we read that in Genesis. Later, as Adam recognized that he was the only human in the garden, God put him to sleep and took a rib from his side and created Eve, his perfect counterpart, his companion, his helper. So then Paul references, refers back to this creation principle in verses 8 and 9 in elaborating on some of those differences between men and women in the church here, is that woman came from man, not the other way around, and woman was created for man. And both of these are go right back to Genesis. And I believe that, that these are two additional realities, or these realities shed additional light on what God intends in the divine headship order, and the reason that man is the head of the woman. So it goes back to creation. Then, when the fall happened, things got out of uh, kelter, and I can't explain it all, but as a result of the fall, man, I believe, is less willing to be the leader that God wants him to be, and women find it harder to submit to or want to take the lead in a way that God did not design, and that's part of the fall. And so the church and what God is calling us to in this headship order is that he wants to reestablish what was established at creation in, in, the, in, in the church and in, in within the, uh, as Christians. <clears throat> the third aspect of this is God's order in nature, verses 14 and 15. This was one I'm not sure I fully understand, but maybe, hopefully I understand better than I did. What does he mean by in nature? Um, when he talks, it does not nature itself teach you. Women's hair naturally grow longer than men's hair do, if left uncut. And I believe it's a fair assumption to say that women generally, um, I'm limiting myself here a little bit, but give more attention to their hair than what men do. You also look around, you see the hair salons and the hair care products and so forth. So the naturally longer hair is a glory to her, and I would say that that is not the same, that is not true for men necessarily. They don't care about their hair as much. And I had to think of cancer. When cancer strikes, the trauma of losing all their hair seems to be far greater for women than it is for men. There's a greater sense of loss of dignity than when a man loses his hair. Uh, and you certainly see men with shaved heads much more frequently than you ever do women. Um, women will generally cover their heads with a scarf or wear a wig when they lose their hair. Men seem less concerned about this. And this is true for all women, whether Christian or non-Christian. 
And so that all points back to nature. There is something built in us as men and women that is different in how we think about even our hair and, uh, and our appearance and so forth. And so there's a, there's a natural order here as well that Paul is, is referencing. Then there's the fourth aspect, because of the angels. <clears throat> Verse 10, there is a power and authority that comes to a Christian when a Christian's woman's head is covered with a proper attitude. I don't understand it, but there's a, some new supernatural aspect uh, that affects the spiritual realm of angels. This phrase, because of the angels, has generated countless speculations about what this means. And throughout church history, there has been a lot of speculation, no proof. I'm not even going to attempt to speculate. The bottom line is we don't know, and we probably never will know in this life. But it's clear that there is a divine power when women obediently cover that somehow the angelic beings recognize. There's something that happens. A number of years ago, there was a column in the World Magazine uh, that really caught my attention. It was entitled, A Symbol of Glory by Andrea Sue. And this is part of what she wrote. It was on this subject. Uh, of the covering, the veiling. She wrote, I read in 1 Corinthians 11 that the woman's head is to be covered in worship. The modern Christian consensus tells me that it is, that is a relative and obsolete command dealing with some first century problem in the city of Corinth. And then she goes on, my high school literary, literary skills tell me otherwise. The command is rooted in creation, verses 7 and 9, and in nature, verse 14. And if that weren't ironclad enough, I am to cover my head because of the angels. The angel detail is so cryptic, so off the wall, so without explanation that it becomes the strongest argument of all. Where is the cultural relativity case now where angels transcend all historical agitations? I just thought that was an interesting take on, on someone that had not practiced that but was wrestling with it. And uh, because of the angels is cryptic, we don't know what it is, but there's something there. And, and we do well to just simply acknowledge it. So here Paul has four theological reasons establishing the principles underlying the wearing of the headship covering for women. It's God's order and authority or headship, in creation, in nature, and because of the angels. And yet, we are told by most Christians today that this is a cultural practice that was only relevant to the Corinthian church at that time. Now, there is nothing cultural in these four reasons whatsoever. It's about God and who he is and what he established. And it is what Paul was teaching them. And I think that we need to be very, we need to understand that, it, that it's, it's about what God established and it's not about what we try to make it out to be. 
I'm going to jump back to verses 4 through 7 and um, just talk about the visible sign of the veiling or the, the covering. Um, I prefer the term headship veiling per, uh, personally, but it's either one is, is certainly uh, biblical. So these four theological reasons explain why the physical or the visible expression is important um, among believers. And this is true for both men and women. Men are to be uncovered and women are to be covered. And there has been a lot of explanation as to how the first century Corinthian culture and related to temple prostitutes, which that was an issue that they use in trying to explain away why this was cultural for that time. I don't find any historical evidence to support this. I didn't dig real long. But there is a fairly widespread agreement among commentators and historians that we were dealing with three different cultures in the Corinthian church. You're dealing with a Greek culture because it was in Greece, the Rome, Roman culture because it was part of the Roman Empire, and a Jewish culture because um, of the Jews that were there. And they all did have different ways of worshiping. As I understand it, Greeks would have worshipped their gods with their heads uncovered. And that is both men and women. And uh, th that's the way that they worshipped. Romans and Jews, on the other hand, would worship having their heads covered. Again, both men and women. And, and so, uh, and they did that out of respect. Um, you know, that they were worshipping... Uh, you know, out of respect and reverence. So the Corinthian culture, the Corinthian church, was a mixture of these three cultures, Greek, Roman, and uh, Jewish. So what Paul is teaching here would have required significant changes for all three culture groups, not just one of them. This was not something that he was adapting to a certain culture, but he was requiring a change for all three. The Greek women were required to start covering the Jewish and Roman men were to quit covering their heads. And so this was, uh, and, and to do otherwise was to dishonor or disrespect God's divine headship order and, and ultimately God himself. So I think that's something to, that this, this was something that would, would have required adjustment across the board. This is not something that was just adapting to a certain way of doing it. It does not seem that covering while praying and prophesying is limited to worship services. And uh, I think there are several reasons you could make that case. One, prayer is to be ongoing. We don't only pray when we're in church. And so that would certainly be one case for that. But also in verses 17 and 18, the, the next, the following verses after this section, Paul speaks specifically about when the church is gathered as a group, which would indicate that this was not necessarily referring, at least not only to that time. And the word cover, the Greek word cover, means to hide, to conceal. And I, if I got it right, a literal 
uh, translation of this would be having down over one's head. And so it's not really proper English, but that's what it means. It's, but it's to cover. So this indicates to me that there is little here about style and much more about whether the head is actually covered or hidden or concealed. Um, it's also implied with this idea of covering that the practice of covering will be seen as a religious sign. It is not a fashion statement. It is not to be confused as just simply other uh, headgear, uh, not something that's confused with a non-religious covering or hat. And so the headship veiling is to be a clear religious sign that covers the head, hides or conceals it. And the purpose for this is to point other people toward God, to bring glory to God rather than drawing attention or focus to oneself and one's hair, which is the natural human inclination. And so, obviously, thinking through this and understanding, it's sad that this practice that's so clearly outlined here is so quickly explained away and disregarded by most Western churches today. It's not true around the world, but in Western churches, it has largely been explained away. I want to spend just a little bit of time thinking through the history of, of this practice and is this something that uh, is truly um, transcends time and place. We're going to look at the historical practice here, but this was practiced universally, I would say, for the first 2,000 years of church history. Uh, going all the way back within several decades of when 1 Corinthians was written, we have the catacombs of Rome, which was not in Corinth, but quite some distance away. And there, are, there is artwork in these catacombs from the first century that uh, indicate women veiling their heads in, the, in these catacombs in Rome. And so that's within several decades of the Corinthian letter. Clement of Alexandria, he was a theologian from Egypt in the second century. He wrote this, women, I'm sorry, woman and man are to go to church decently attired, for this is the wish of the word, since it is becoming for her to pray veiled. Um, Tertullian, about the same time period, from another part of Africa in Carthage, says this, wrote this, Likewise, the Corinthians themselves understood him in this manner. In fact, at this very day, the Corinthians do veil their virgins. What the apostles taught, their disciples approve. And then he also wrote at some point, a woman should not appear with her head uncovered on account of the angels. Um, there are numerous quotes from 
these and other early writers that I am not quoting, but this is just a sampling. Then John Chrysostom in the fourth century from Turkey, for her to go without her head covering, contrary to Paul's teaching, is an indecency. Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages, the 1200s. It pertains to man's dignity not to wear a covering on his head, to show that he is immediately subject to God, but the woman should wear a covering to show that besides God, she is naturally subject to another. Um, Martin Luther, German theologian, wrote, women should be covered with a veil for the sake of the angels. And I found it interesting that there is a drawing of Martin Luther and his wife, uh, and she is obviously veiled um, for this. Um, I don't know the context of this, but it certainly is evident there that she, and there's other drawings and photos in history that would indicate this as well. In addition to that, sometime later, um, the Wesleys were veiled as well, their wives. Um, Susanna Wesley is the mother of John and Charles Wesley. And this is Sarah, uh, the wife of Charles Wesley. And so both of them are clearly veiled as well. John Cotton, a English clergyman and a colonist uh, here in the States, wrote this. All the members of the church are joined together. The men with their heads uncovered, the women covered. Um, there is no record that I could find, and from what I could read, of any Christian writings prior to the 1800s that even attempted to attribute this as a cultural thing. It was just assumed and accepted as, as it was. And now, you know, this is widely disregarded. And um, when speaking to other believers and even pastors about this practice today, one would think that this practice of the headship veiling is some fringe belief that just is way out there. And it's obviously not applicable to us today. Entire sermons are preached explaining why this passage does not apply to today, rather than how it applies. But it's not always been that way. It's literally within the last hundred years, since the early 20th century to mid-20th century, that this practice of women not covering, at least for worship services, uh, ended here in America. During the 1800s, there were some commentators that started ascribing this practice to simply a cultural aspect in Corinth. But even then, it was still widely practiced. It was, it was, it was practiced across Christendom, uh, even though some commentators were making that, those claims. In the late 1800s, hats began to replace the bonnet or the veiling, as we would, uh, would have seen those pictures. <clears throat> um, by the 1920s and 1930s, hats were more of a fashion statement than a religious statement, but still worn religiously to church. And so there was kind of that shift in the late 1800s where the meaning of it may have started to change, but it was still practiced 
well into the 1930s. Actually, there was an article in the Montreal Gazette, the major newspaper in Montreal in 1935, with a headline that a church was going hatless. So that was in 1935, and making big news that a church was not wearing, no longer requiring hats. By the 1950s, when hats started going out of style, that's when the trend not to cover in church became a more broad, broadly accepted phenomenon. So literally, that's, that's in the, not in my lifetime, but it's certainly in the lifetime of the older ones here in our midst today that this significantly changed within the church. In the 1980s, when our family lived in Arkansas, my parents did upholstery work, and I recall going along to pick up a piece of furniture from a couple in the area. They were semi-retired or retired. I don't remember all the details. But I, I do recall that as we walked in, there was this big portrait of a woman hanging there on the wall. And my dad commented about it, and it was explained that that was their mother. Mom can't remember these details, and I think I'm right, but it's what I remember. And he said it's his mother, and it was a, and she said she was a faithful Methodist. And that portrait looked a lot like the one you would have seen like of Susanna Wesley, an obvious bonnet-style covering on her head. And that was this couple's, one of their mothers. And only a generation prior. So that was in the, in the 1980s. R.C. Sproul was, as most of you are familiar with his name, probably a Protestant theologian and pastor, lived from 1939 to 2017. I have two quotes here from him. <clears throat> During my high school years, when I went to church on Sunday morning, I never saw a woman in that church, which was a mainline Presbyterian church, whose head wasn't covered with a hat or veil. This is one of those customs that simply disappeared for the most part from Christian culture. And then he goes on. The church has rejected this practice in the last 30 to 40 years, not because of new interpretive insights, but because of the pressure from the world. That's coming from a Protestant theologian in our lifetime that died four years ago. In the late 1960s, the National Organization for Women was founded or became more active. It's a feminist organization promoting abortion and women's rights, and they have documents indicating that, quote, many churches use head coverings to symbolize submission. So this was understood in the late 60s uh, by the feminist movement. In conclusion, I just want to summarize a few of these thoughts here. God's word gives instruction for and principles that are universally applicable to all people in all cultures at all times. That is what God's word is. Ivan was talking about this, and that includes the letter to 1 Corinthians. It includes this passage from 1 Corinthians. The last verse... Verse 16 of this seems to indicate that this issue isn't even debated. Now, the way it's worded in the King James is not um, real 
it's hard to read, but it seems to me what he's saying is that in Corinth or in any other church at that time, there is, there, this issue is not even debated. We don't even, it, people may talk about it, but it's not up for debate. It is just simply, it's settled. That's the way it is. It was the accepted way to worship God. So the reasons Paul outlines are theological. It's about God, not about us or Corinth. God's order of authority, God's order in creation, God's order in nature, and because of the angel. Women veiling their heads and men uncovering their heads is a God-ordained theological practice. So let's not just dismiss it as cultural. Instead, let's embrace this deeply theological practice unapologetically and with enthusiasm. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage of scripture. And Lord, I pray that we can be faithful to what you intend for this scripture. I pray that you would give us understanding and a desire to live out these principles, even if it's not something that is popular in the culture around us. I pray that you would give us um, enthusiasm and, um, and conviction for this, uh, for this principle. I pray that to Jesus Christ and that we can be the men that you want us to be in order to make this headship order that you have put in place from the beginning of creation to work and to function as you would have it to even here today. I want to thank you for this. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.